and continue the series that Chris started, the I Heart series. And uh, in light of Valentine's Day uh, being tomorrow, and in light of me probably needing like a romantic shot in the arm, I get to teach the I Love My Spouse uh, lesson this morning. So before we get going, we've got a, uh, a humorous little uh, video to show here, um, give some pointers to the men. So men pay special attention uh, to this, uh, this video this morning. And uh, uh, we always need all the help we can get. This is the Don't song. Stop, stop, stop. 
Wow. Oh, my. I'm not even sure how to follow that. You know, it may just be worth coming up and closing in prayer. And that's, uh, that's all the instruction we need right there. Guys, just uh, if you think about saying something, just, just don't. <laughs> don't do it. Stop it. Cut it out. That's funny. I thought about bringing some jokes with me this morning to start out with, but I think that was enough humor for the day. That that got it done. All right, so this morning, we're going to talk about loving our spouses. How many uh, have already heard, um, you know, I don't know, radio messages or anything heading into Valentine's Day, and you're already done hearing about loving your spouse? Anybody at that point yet? None? Great. Excellent. I've got a great crowd in front of me. Well, my original question this morning was going to be, does your spouse think you smell? You know, that was kind of the, does your spouse think you smell? But then I started thinking, if we're really all honest with ourselves, we all know the answer to that. We all know, yeah, I sm- or my spouse smells. And all the ladies are definitely shaking their head that their spouse smells. And then we know we do. Um, when Dane and I first got married, um, I worked at a bowling alley. And this was back before they passed the laws where you can't smoke in any kind of indoor building or facility or whatever. And I would work late at night and uh, usually get home probably after midnight, even 1 o'clock, because I had to shut down the bowling alley. I had to do all the cleaning. And so I would, would have spent six to eight hours in this bowling alley uh, with a lot of smoking uh, families and stuff like that. So, um, And my wife is a very sound sleeper. She will sleep through the kids crying at night. She will sleep through the dog barking, and on rare occasions, she will sleep through our house alarm going off in the middle of the night, and it is loud. It wakes up all of our neighbors. So she can, she can sleep through about anything. When we were first married, the nights where I would come home from the bowling alley, and I would just, I would just reek of smoke, as soon as I walked in the bedroom door, I mean, it was almost instantaneous. She would just roll over and just be like, oh, man, you smell. She's like, you have, you have got to get out. You, you can't come in here. So I, I would be required to immediately take a shower and then take my clothes, put them in a sealed Tupperware container, and bury them 100 feet from the house. <laughs> so this morning, you may not smell that bad. You, you may not smell like smoke. You may not smell like anything. But I think we all, when it comes to our marriage, when it comes to what uh, the aroma that we give off, we all give off some sort of aroma in how we love our spouse. So the appropriate question is, what does your spouse think you smell like? Do we give off the aroma of selfishness, or do we give off the aroma of sacrifice? Now, going into our marriages, and I definitely include myself in this, um, many of us probably were focused on how happy our, our spouse-to-be was going to make us. You know, we probably had dreams and visions of a family that was um, always just having fun, being happy, smiling all the time. I really didn't picture that happening with kids. And so it was really happy dreams and visions and everything. And just, oh, we're going to go mountain climbing and biking. And we're just going to have so much fun. It's going to be so happy. Any, anybody else have those? Is anybody actually happy in their marriage? I guess that's really what, do we have some that are happy? Okay, yeah, good for you. Um, but when it comes to marriage, God... God's got a different view on this. He's got a different purpose for marriage. I mean, you know, we all want to be happy, but God's got a little bit of a different focus on it. In the Bible, the concept of marriage is used to describe the most important relationship 
that there is. God uses marriage to correlate his relationship with himself and his people in the Old Testament. And then he uses it to correlate the relationship between Christ and the church in the New Testament. And these relationships, God and his people and Christ and the church, were not meant to make us happy. That's not their purpose. Their purpose was to make us holy. Now, God in the Bible gives a lot of instruction on how to relate to people. Lots of different uh, passages on how to relate to people, whether you're married, whether you're a a slave, a servant, uh, whether you're a boss. Um, And that's because there's a lot of different emotions, a lot of different feelings, a lot of different uh, dynamics that come into play when you're relating to somebody. You know, communication, uh, anger, forgiveness. But when you have a marriage relationship... All of those dynamics that, that come into play when you relate with somebody whew, happen in one spot. They can even happen in a very short amount of time. Now, if you don't believe me, you can go on a two-day, uh, two-week vacation to New York and drive the whole way in a, in a minivan or, God forbid, in a car. And then, as you're driving home, that last half hour, when, when you're almost home, uh, you will go through uh, celebration, you'll go through encouragement, You'll go through frustration, you'll go through anger and pain, and then hopefully forgiveness, and then eventually exhaustion. And then you'll get home and you won't want to put anything away, and then it'll start all over again. So because, because of this dynamic in marriage, um, it gives us a unique opportunity, a unique opportunity to reflect holiness, the kind of holiness that God wants us to grow in, and not just promote happiness. God wants our marriages to reflect His holiness, and while it may, in the end, make us happy, we may be happier in our marriages if we focus on holiness. That is not, that is not the primary purpose. And one of the primary passages on marriage is in Ephesians 5. And it gives us instruction on submissive love and sacrificial love. Verses 22 and 23 say, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. And then a couple of verses later, he gives instruction to the husband saying, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now that's good instruction, but the chapter begins with a calling to Christ's standard. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And gave himself up for her, for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now, there's a few points I want to look at here in these two verses that begin the chapter. Because throughout this chapter, he's given instruction on relationships, um, servants. He's, he's, he's focused on how to walk in love. And so while he's talking to wives and husbands, the very beginning of this chapter, he says to be, to be imitators of God as he sacrificed for us. So the first point is to know that Jesus became the ultimate and the final fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrifices. In Hebrews 9, um, it says that Christ entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. In the Old Testament, they were having to give the sacrifices over and over and over again, to constantly be having to go back to the Lord for atonement. But Christ was once for all. He went into the holy place and gave a final and ultimate fulfillment of these sacrifices. The second point is that Christ's sacrifice was a pleasing aroma. It was a pleasing aroma to God. 
This is because Christ submitted and obeyed the will of God. I mean, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, he was, he was asking God. He was calling out to him, God, if, if you can do it another way, you know, I'd be all about that. But whatever your will is, that's what I'm going to do. So it was a pleasing aroma because he was submitted to Christ's will, to God's will. And the third is that we are called to imitate Christ. The first phrase of this chapter is, Therefore, be imitators of God. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 even says, Follow me as I follow Christ. It's kind of a theme in the Bible, especially a theme in the New Testament. We're called to live as Christ lived, love as he loved, to become like Christ. So it's important that we don't miss the fact that we are called to imitate Christ. Now, that's a great principle, but when it comes to our marriages, how do we put this into practice? How do, we, how do we do this? The question becomes, so how do I sacrifice myself for my spouse like Christ sacrificed himself for me? Because he gave his life for me. Am I just supposed to go around looking for opportunities to do that? I mean, all right, guys, how many of you, if it really came down to it, raise your hand, would say, right, if my wife were tied up on a train track and the engine's barreling down on her, all right, if, if it comes to that, I will step up. I'll throw her to the side. She'll probably get on to me for that later. And I, if I have to, I will sacrifice myself or I'll give it up, you know, when it comes down to that because I just don't anticipate that happening. So I will gladly <laughs> raise my hand and, and say, yes, I'm on board with that. All right? So that, that kind of sacrifice and, and opportunities for that probably aren't going to come our way. But what we need to do is just look at Ephesians 1 and 2 and pay special attention to the final phrase where it says, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. God wants us to smell nice. Sorry, guys. He, he does. God wants us to smell nice, but not physically, although you can probably make a biblical argument for that. I don't know. But really, spiritually, God wants us to be giving off a fragrant aroma that is pleasing to him. So what we need to do is take a look back at the sacrifices that are, and offerings that are being referenced that are a pleasing aroma to God. So we're going to go back to the first three chapters of Leviticus, and you can go ahead and turn to Leviticus chapter 1, and we're going to look at the free will offerings. Now, some background here. The Israelites were just a couple of years removed uh, from the exodus out of Egypt. They had been struggling to trust God. They were griping. They were moaning. They were tired of eating manna. You know, they had worshipped the golden calf. And, and now they had just finished building uh, the tabernacle. They had built it according to some very specific uh, instructions. The, uh, the melancholies of uh, the Israelites were really happy about that, that he gave them really specific instructions. Um, so the first one we're going to look at is called the burnt offering. What it was, it was a replacement sacrifice for atonement. It replaced the offerer uh, with, a, uh, with a calf or an animal being offer, offered, and was for atonement. Now, it wasn't the kind of atonement that Christ has given the final atonement. This was a, a atonement that they, had to come, that they had to do on a regular basis. So we're going to start. We're going to read verse 3. Start in verse 3. It says, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, a male without def- defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar 
that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put the fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet over the wood, which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. And it goes on to give some similar instructions if the offering was uh, from a flock or if it was from birds and kind of depended on uh, the fi- really the financial status of the one uh, who was giving the offering, if they were poor or not. Now, so we want to take a look at a couple of points here, uh, key elements of this sacrifice. The first one is that it was without blemish. It was without blemish. Now, as we go through these, you'll kind of start uh, hearing in things that uh, refer that you can all refer to Christ as as the fulfillment of this. Um, but this needed to be without blemish. Verse three says, "If his offering is a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without defect." The second was that it required death; blood had to be spilled. Verse five says, "He shall slay the young bull before the Lord." God says, "The penalty of sin is death." And the blood has to be shed. And the third point is that this was a whole burnt offering. That's W-H-O-L-E, not H-O-L-E. It was the entire, the entire offering was burnt, save for uh, the skin. In verse 9 it says, And the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering. Some offerings had uh, parts that were used for food. Uh, some were given to the priests. But this one, the whole thing was consumed. You can kind of think of this offering as a the whole enchilada kind of offering. Everything about it, when you talk about without blemish, the whole thing had to be without blemish. When you talk about death, there's no partial death. When you die, you're dead. And when, and when it comes to the whole burnt offering, it was all consumed. So it, this, thing, this uh, uh, offering also dealt not with a specific sin, but it dealt with the sinfulness of the offer, the one giving the offering. It, it was a... Um, an offering that dealt with his entire sinful nature, not just because of a specific sin. It was also a very common uh, offering done a lot of times. Um, uh, it, it had already been practiced, so it was very common. And uh, it also represented um, a, a kind of commitment level, a total commitment and dedication uh, to God. So how can, we, how can we love our spouse as Christ fulfilled this offering? Well, for a sweet-smelling marriage, and let me tell you what, I did not think about that phrase before I typed it up, and I'm trying to say it three or four times during this thing. I'm probably going to start getting tongue-tied, so just bear with me if I do that. But for a sweet-smelling marriage, we need to love totally. We need to love totally, completely. We need to love our spouse with a kind of love that is encompassing every part of our lives. First thing we need to do is we need to live a life of integrity. In Romans 6, verse 11, it says, Even so, he's referring to like Christ, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Sin and selfishness don't have to rule our lives. If you want to love your spouse, we need to live a life with total integrity. As a sacrifice required death, we need to die to ourself, to our selfishness. And it needs to be a a total lifestyle um, of integrity. Specifically to the wives, um, a life of showing respectful submission. In 1 Peter chapter 3, 
Verses 1 and 2, it says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. And then husbands need a little of a life of showing honor and understanding. Verse 7 in 1 Peter 3 says, In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. Now, both of these little sections here that he's talking to begin with the phrase, in the same way. And it refers to, uh, in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, um, submission in honoring a king. And, uh, and, so Christ, and he goes on to talk about Christ's example of how he was submissive. And he even talks about he was submissive during, uh, during suffering, while being ridiculed and reviled. So we can't just set aside uh, our, uh, well, I love my spouse except when, uh, you know, it's difficult or they hate me, you know. This needs to be in a, a totally encompassing uh, lifestyle that we live. The second offering is the grain offering. This offering was a sacrifice of dedication and of value. Again, this one showed dedication to the Lord, but meant a sacrifice of something that was valuable. We turn to chapter 2 in Leviticus. The first couple of verses say, Now when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. He shall then bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and shall take from it his handful of its fine flour and of its oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke as its memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire of a, smoothing, a, smooth, a soothing aroma to the Lord. And the person presenting this, this offering had to sacrifice flour, oil, and frankincense. And uh, to them, that was, that was incredibly valuable. The Israelites, as we had said, had just left Egypt. And uh, as, they're, as they're leaving Egypt, they apparently... Um, would have gathered up a lot of grain, probably for seed. Because as we know, as they're heading towards the promised land, God is feeding them with manna. They're not stopping to start uh, farming and everything like that. So they're carrying this grain with them. And if you can imagine yourself as a, an Israelite farmer or farmer-to-be, you know, you've got this grain and it's set aside as when we get to the promised land, maybe I'm going to start farming corn, wheat, whatever, they, you know, whatever it was. Well, God asks them to take that and make it part of a sacrifice. And as they're doing this, they're not, they're not farming along the way to generate more and, more and more seed. This is what they've got. So they had to start showing dedication and trust to God, saying, all right, God, you're going to provide for in the future. I've got X amount, and as I, as I sacrifice it, um, I'm going to be required to, to trust you that whatever I've got left when we get there is going to be enough to provide for myself and my family and anybody else that needs it. So they were trusting God for future provisions. Now, a couple of uh, parts of this sacrifice we want to focus on. The first one is man's participation. Man's participation in the sacrifice. The burnt offering was all about atonement. And we all know that we provide absolutely nothing for our atonement. Christ paid it all. But the grain offering would have been offered along with the burnt offering. And it provided some way for, for the offerer to participate. In verses 4 and 7, it says that uh, his grain can be baked in an oven. 
It could be made on the griddle or it can be made in a pan. So the offerer had options of uh, ways, to, uh, ways to cook it, to bake it. There were even options on what, uh, what grains they were going to use. So the decisions could be made, and it was kind of up to the offer to decide, here's how I'm going to do it this time. Uh, men, they didn't have microwave ovens, so you were kind of left. You had to learn how to, to, to do some baking. Um, and the second one is that it was flavored with salt. The grain offering was flavored with salt. Verse 13 says, Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt. And not only does this have the idea of flavoring, uh, but it also has the idea of preservation. Salt was used to, to flavor food, but it was also used to preserve meats and stuff. And so because they're offering it with the burnt offering and the burnt sacrifice, this, this was kind of symbolizing to the offerer that, that this, we are preserving this covenant. God is preserving this covenant that he's entered into with you. And so the salt would have represented um, to, the, it, to the offerer that this covenant of mine is being preserved uh, with these sacrifices. This offering gave the person a real opportunity to show his devotion and dedication to God. This was, this was an act that, that could tangibly say, here I am, God, I'm dedicating myself and my future to you. So how do we, how do we relate that to our marriages? We need to love tangibly. For a sweet-smelling marriage, we need to love tangibly. If your spouse only hears you say, I love you, or if even that, and all you do is just say, well, they know I love them. And we don't show our spouse love tangibly, then uh, our, our marriage is not going to be giving off the sweet-smelling aroma that God requires. So how can we do this? Well, we can speak our spouse's love language. Now, I don't know if you've heard of the love languages, if you've read the book, there's, there's wives smiling and, and husbands going, oh, oh my gosh. But... There's a book out that spells, uh, five, spells out five love languages and ways to communicate to your spouse that you love them. And, uh, and there, there are five of them. Um, uh, the first, Ephesians 2.10 says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. We were created to do things for each other, and especially in our marriage. So we were made to love each other with these five love languages, with words and with gifts and with time. And with actions, and yes, with even touch. These love languages are just are tangible ways that we can express our love to our spouse. Now, the kicker is, and this book explains this, you've got to know what your spouse's love language is. You've got to know whether they enjoy receiving gifts or not. Because I, I don't remember if I actually gave, you, gave my wife very many gifts, because I think I figured out pretty quickly that my wife's love language was not receiving gifts. So I didn't waste a lot of money going out and buying flowers and everything. <laughs> Because she would just look at me and be like, that's nice. Why don't you spend some time with me instead of going to the store and buying me flowers? So it's important to, to communicate with your spouse and find out what the love language is that they speak. Because if you don't know, you're probably going to speak the one that, that you, that's your language. My love language is acts of service. And while my wife really appreciates me you know, washing the dishes or doing stuff like that when, uh, when I'm not asked, man, that's, man, the first two years of my marriage... I washed dishes every chance I could. I would even do some laundry and everything like that. And my wife would just get fr- so frustrated because I would then spend time watching college basketball and football. She was like, all right, we're not really spending any time together, you know? And I'm like, well, that's all right. I washed the dishes and I did the laundry. And <laughs> seriously, I even vacuumed. So what are you all upset about? So it's important that loving your spouse tangibly, 
it's got to be one, a way that they are actually going to appreciate because giving your wife a, uh, a, a Harley for her uh, birthday and then deciding you'll drive it after she does, that's, not, that's really not tangible loving. Not, not that uh, Harleys are bad or anything. But, uh, so anyway, the second, the second part is speak with grace. Speak with grace. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt. The way we need to talk, talk to each other should preserve our relationship. It should show grace. It shouldn't tear us down. All right, when we speak to our spouse, we need to be thinking about what is going to build them up, what is going to build up their, uh, their character, what is going to encourage them. If we spend a lot of time speaking to them and tearing them down, then uh, our, marriages, our marriages will struggle and, uh, and they, will not, they will not respond in love. It will be more difficult for them on the other side to be doing these things and to be offering a sacrifice to you. So when we speak to our spouse, we need to speak with grace. Now the third offering is called the peace offering. And what it was is a sacrifice for reconciliation and fellowship. And it's in Leviticus chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 6. But if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord it is, is from the flock, he shall offer it, male or female, without defect. If he is going to offer a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and slay it before the tent of meeting. And Aaron's son shall sprinkle its blood around the altar. From the sacrifice of peace offerings, he shall bring his offering by fire to the Lord, its fat, the entire fat tail, which shall remove close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. Then the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar as food, an offering by fire to the Lord. Now, there are a couple of key elements in this offering. The first is that it is a provision of food. It says he's offering it up as food. In verse 11, the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar as food. And now, while this offering was also... Uh, um, a, a food offering. It was more than just what the grain offering provided for the priests. This one was really seen as a meal. It was really seen as a meal between um, the offerer and God. It also had the importance of representing occasions. It signaled the importance of occasions. This offering was offered as a free will offering, but it also had occasions where it was required. In times of thanksgiving, in times of completing a vow, Leviticus 7, verses 12 and 16 say, If he offers it by way of thanksgiving, or but if the sacrifice is a votive offering or a vow offering. So if, an, so if someone uh, had something to be thankful for, if there was a time of true thanksgiving, or if he completed a vow, this was the offering he gave. So this offering was intended to symbolize a meal between God and the one offering it. And it showed peace and fellowship by sharing a meal together. That was kind of the Israeli... Uh, uh, culture. When you shared a meal together with them, it represented fellowship, friendship, love, and it drew you closer. So, kind of an easy transition into how we how we serve our spouse in marriage with this one. For a sweet-smelling marriage, we need to love together. We need to love together. This sacrifice not only not only benefits the one who is going to receive 
the receiving end of your sacrifice, but it, it benefits the one who is doing the sacrifice and the offering. And it's going to bring you close together. First thing we need to do, we need to implan and to enjoy special meals together. Husbands, listen, sometimes you need to cook a, wheel, a meal for your wife. And I'm talking to me too because I don't cook. Macaroni and cheese is even a stretch for me. Yeah, I think I can do it. I do it. The kids aren't real picky, so I can, I can cook it for them. They don't, they don't complain. But, if, but I really need to get on the ball on this. Or you can take your wife to her favorite restaurant. Wives, you can simply uh, make your husband his favorite meal. You can take him to his favorite restaurant, but he may not have a fa- favorite restaurant. Just take him somewhere and you can get a big slab of meat or a giant cheeseburger and fries. That'll work. But the key is to spend time together at your meal. Make your meal time focused. Spend time visiting. Spend time laughing. Just spend time being a couple and focusing on you guys being together. Another thing that we can do is we can celebrate milestones and occasions together. Now, obviously, we think of you know birthdays or anniversaries when it comes to that. But also, you know, if your spouse has little accomplishments, make sure you notice those things and and make an event of it. You know, say you know what, honey, you had a uh, you you had a great presentation at work the, uh, the other day that you were telling about telling me about. And this weekend, I'm going to take you out. We're going to kind of celebrate that. It wasn't anything. Um, that uh, you know anybody at work was going to celebrate, but um, but it's special to you. I know it was big because you've been talking about it for two weeks. How you were nervous about it and it went well. So surprise your spouse with uh, by noticing significant events in their life, and then when you do that, again, make sure you remember what their love language is. Because if you surprise them with something that that uh, that, that doesn't speak their language, it may just go right over their head. They may miss it, and you may. Start, you know, thinking, hey, I really got, I got uh, some brownie points for that. And your spouse may wonder what the heck you're talking about. And so if you go back and try to reference it, it'll just, uh, you'll fall flat on your face on that one. But also we need to say thank you. We need to say thank you to our spouse. A sit-down meal is a great opportunity to tell your spouse how thankful you are for them, for what they do for you, and for how they're using the gifts that God has given them. It's best, obviously, if you have children, find somebody to uh, watch them. I'm sure uh, Kim and Todd will volunteer for everybody. They will watch everybody's kids whenever they need this night. Just kidding. But just don't ask me. No, but we need to find time to focus on our relationship with our spouse. We need to find time where it's just us. And yes, men, we need to communicate. We need to talk. And we need to honor our spouse with spending time with them and saying thank you. So we've talked about kind of all the different uh, aspects of these uh, offerings uh, that they have individually. But there are some common denominators, but they're really kind of uncommon denominators because you don't find them uh, just anywhere. All three of these offerings were characterized by, number one, being offered freely. They were free will offerings. Now, as a reference, Jesus is obviously the perfect example of giving oneself freely. In John 10, 18, he says, No one has taken it, meaning his life, away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. He gave his life freely. And if we're going to imitate him, we need to offer the love and sacrifice to our spouse freely. Sacrificial love for your spouse is not to be earned 
It's not to be bargained for. And it certainly doesn't need to be manipulated. So it doesn't matter if when you come home, men, if you come home from work and you're expecting a, you know, a hot meal on the table and you get home and the house is in shambles and your wife is running around with her, uh, like a chicken with her head cut off and the kids are yelling and screaming, that's not the time to say, well, hey, I, I worked hard today and uh, you know, this just uh, doesn't cut it. You know, if you don't feel like your, your, your spouse is pulling up her end of the bargain, this it really is the time to show that sacrificial love. This is a free will offering, and you need to give it freely. Your spouse shouldn't feel like they have to earn it. They have to live up to it. The second characteristic is that they use fire. They were all characterized by using fire. In Romans 5, 3 through 4, it says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Opportunities to grow in holiness most often come in difficult and inconvenient and painful circumstances. The time to show our holiness may seem like it's easy, may seem easy when everything's going well. Hey, I'm happy, you know, I've got the happiness thing going. But, but that's really not when holiness really comes out. The fragrant aroma will really shine through in times where your spouse is really getting on your nerves. When you come home and they haven't done what they said they were going to do, they had said, oh, honey, I've got, uh, I've got something I will get done for you. Um, you know, I've got uh, some, a door to fix in the garage. Babe, I'll, I'll get to it and I'll get the trash out at the same time. And then the husband falls asleep on the couch and lays there all night. Our instinct is to, is to be upset with our spouse. But to show sacrificial love that is given freely, this is the fire. This is the altar. This is, where, this is where it's really difficult to show that holiness. But this is where we set ourselves apart from the way the world thinks and behaves. Number three, they were all characterized by producing fragrance and a pleasing fragrance. Now, this isn't just so that we can look good in front of others and, and really even uh, just please God. But God also has another purpose for this. He's got a higher purpose of holiness. Marital love should please God by being an image of the gospel. It should show the gospel message in the way we treat our spouse. Second Corinthians 2, 15 and 16 says, Our lives are a fragrance presented by Christ to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those being saved and by those perishing. To those who are per- life-giving perfume. So the unsaved world, the way we love our spouse, our marriage should really almost be as offensive to the unbelieving world as the gospel message is and Christ is. Our marriage should reflect how Christ sacrificed for us. It should be odd. It should be awkward to the people around us who, who aren't saved. They should look at it and, be, and see something completely different. It should remind them of the mercy that He shows should be shown in our marriage lives. 